This morning we're going to be looking at the 10th chapter in the Gospel of Luke. We'll begin in verse 25. This will look familiar to many of us. It's the text that introduces one of the most often shared stories in the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we're not going to go that deeply into this story today. Instead, we're going to focus on the two questions that Jesus asks in verse 26. Now, if you have your Bible with you today, and I sure hope that you do, will you please turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And let me suggest that we should never open our Bibles in silence, but always with a sound of thanksgiving and prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the special revelation you have given us in our Bible, your holy and errant word. Father, we ask this morning that you open our hearts and our minds, open our ears so that we may hear, that the words we hear be your own, that we may come to know you better than when we first came here. Father, thank you for loving us and giving us the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we're privileged to pray, today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. Well, I'll be using the English Standard Version of the Bible this morning. Will you stand with me now in honor of God's Word as we share Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. This is God's inerrant word. Please be seated. Well, Jesus answers this lawyer's question with a couple of questions of his own. What is written in the law? How do you read it? For most of our history, the bodies of believers have not had the freedom to interpret Scripture based on how they read it. It wasn't until the Reformation that the idea that a simple believer could and should come to an understanding by reading his or her own Bible was recognized as essential Christian doctrine. Now, doctrine is a church word we're going to talk about today. It means it's a set of beliefs that's held or taught by the church. That's church doctrine. Well, today, many Christians who have been blessed with the truth are not free to speak it. The reality is that in the Christian world, for most of church history, the majority of believers could not read their own Bible and they were not free to speak the truth. But we have no such excuse. We live in a unique place and time where Bibles are quite literally free for the asking. And regardless of our shrinking landscape, we are, at least for now, free to speak the truth. But as we are now witnessing religious liberty, the freedom to speak the truth is delicate, fading, and tentative. For example, there's a bill in the state of California that will prohibit private Christian colleges and universities from compelling students to attend chapel services or even 
the necessity that they profess a relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, this legislation, which has already cleared the Senate and is expected to pass the House in the state of California, will prohibit Christian schools from being Christian. The good news is, and there is good news, the good news is that liberty is not defined by the state of California or even by the temporary state of confusion which has infected our world with politically correct thinking, the ways of the world, and something called the right side of history. God defines religious liberty. And it starts with the exercise of these two simple questions. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The mission before us is to put ourselves in a position to answer the Lord's questions and then to teach our children to do the same. Three years ago, in recognition of our responsibility to teach the next generation about Jesus, we, the congregation, the members of the Beaverdam Baptist Church, formed a school here at Beaverdam. The Beaverdam Christian Academy opened in September 2004. And from the beginning, our school has been tied to the doctrine of our church. Our school is under the authority of our pastor and the conviction of our common creed. The purpose of our school is for our children to come to know the freedom of their salvation in Jesus Christ and then to be able to speak the truth that can only be found in knowing him. Religious liberty is when we are free to speak the truth. What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is the freedom to speak the truth. But notice that Jesus does not ask this lawyer for his opinion. Jesus asks him, what is written? There's an old adage, if you get five Baptists together for a Bible study, you're going to end up with five different ideas on the meaning of the passage. And while we laugh at our independence, we recognize that God speaks to us in his word, and it is to his word that we are tied. It was Adrian Rogers who said, Baptists cherish our doctrinal inheritance. We are a people of the book who recognize no other authority for faith and practice but God's word. Thus we receive and affirm those doctrines revealed in the Bible and we are unembarrassed to take our stand on this solid rock of biblical authority. He made these remarks introducing the confession on which we at Beaverdam stand, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Our confession, said Rogers, represents statements of those doctrines revealed in the Bible. The Bible is the source of our authority, not merely a support for our historic doctrines. While we are fiercely independent, we recognize the need to respond to the Lord's question with a single voice. And we recognize the danger of drifting away from his truth if we are not firmly anchored in his holy word. There's another adage to go along with the first that says, Christianity is only a generation away from extinction. Think about it. We do not come to Christ by way of association, but by way of the gospel. We are not born into salvation. In fact, we are born in sin. And it is only by the gospel, 
first articulated, that is spoken, preached, presented, shared by the body of Christ that we may be born again. It is only by the grace of God through faith in his son that we sinners are saved. What this means is the next generation is useless to Christ unless we who hold the truth of this gospel share it with them. Without the due diligence of articulating what we believe and why, simply having the truth without defining and defending it is no guarantee we will maintain it. Paul addressed this in his letter to the church at Galatia, Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. Paul said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's astonishing how quickly we desert God when we're faced with trouble from those who wish to distort his word. Just as there is only one God, as Paul said, there is only one gospel. To turn away from the gospel is to turn away from God. Basil Manley was born near Pittsburgh, North Carolina on January 28, 1798. By the time he was 30, he was widely recognized as one of the most gifted preachers in the South. In 1837, Manley, a Baptist, left the pulpit to become president of the University of Alabama. It was a position he would hold until 1855. While maintaining his office as president of the university, Manley played a key role, some would argue the key role, in founding the Southern Baptist Convention. The University of Alabama was founded on conservative Christian doctrine and was shepherded by conservative Christian men. But something happened to the University of Alabama. In 1991, Philip Bishop, an associate professor of physical education, was in trouble with his superiors because, as university lawyers said, he had hurt the reputation of the university. Although Bishop was, by all accounts, an excellent professor, he had a habit that made some students uncomfortable, that others found annoying, and that the university said was intolerable. In his exercise physiology classes, he occasionally referred to his Christian beliefs. One year, he also organized an optional after-class discussion on the subject, Evidence of God in Human Physiology. Some students resented the intrusion of religion into physical education and complained. The department chairman promptly ordered Bishop to stop mentioning his religious convictions in class and to stop holding optional classes on religious topics. The university offered three reasons for this demand. First, Bishop's activities were unconstitutional since they appear to give one religion the official endorsement of a state university. Second, students might feel uncomfortable or coerced to attend the optional class. And last and most important, he made the school look bad. Truth without conviction rarely lasts longer than a single generation. I'm astonished, said Paul, that you're so quickly deserting him 
who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. How does a university fall from a solid Christian foundation to finding the simple expression of Christian beliefs by an assistant gym coach make the school look bad? They fall away because they cannot correctly respond to the question of the Christ, what is written in the law? How do you read it? They fall away because they're not firmly moored in what is written. They hold no creed to pass on to the next generation. Is it any wonder their children have no idea how to articulate what they believe and why? Albert Moeller is the president of our Southern Baptist Seminary. In order to attend our seminary, both teachers and students must subscribe to the doctrines and covenants of the school and the church as expressed by Baptists to include the Baptist faith and message. This is a practice we have adopted, we have incorporated into our school here at Beaverdam. And Dr. Moeller explains the necessity for doing this. He says it's important for us to recognize that there are many distinctions to be found in the church today. If we separate ourselves, we might look at the differences between a confessional and non-confessional Christianity. Specifically, how do we articulate what we believe and why? The great and defining issue is whether there are any specific definable doctrines that constitute the heart of Christianity, and then are we able to articulate those specific doctrines that define Christian confession, testimony, and theology. And thus the great divide. The future of the faith represents rests in our ability to identify the doctrines of Christ and then teach them to our children. Our faith cannot be defined by a mood or a feeling. It can be defined only by reference to truth. Likewise, our faith cannot be shared as commanded by the Lord if we do not speak that truth, but instead choose to speak another gospel. There are certain truths that constitute the core of what we understand the gospel to be. Confession is important to us in that we recognize every time we open the Bible, every time we share a hymn, a psalm, or a story from his living text, we are reminded that we are not the first generation of believers to share this truth. Part of our assignment as Christians is to make certain that what we are saying is the same thing that the faithful have said from the very beginning. What is written in the law? How do you read it? in order to sing the right words, in order to preach the right message, in order to share the right gospel, if we are not saying the same things, then we're doing exactly what the Apostle Paul warns the Galatians they must not do. We are preaching some other gospel. Now you don't, as Moeller observed, have to be very adept with a remote control to find those who are preaching some other gospel. Christianity today is defined by a theological confusion traceable at least to the lack of an accountable confession. Again, quite simply, we don't know what we believe and why we believe the things we think we believe. And it's these things we believe that others do not that make us Christians in a pagan world. They say that doctrine divides. We can be thankful that it does indeed. 
The history of Baptists over and over again stresses the need for a confessional accountability statement of what they believe and why, because otherwise you would never be sure what makes a Baptist a Baptist. You would never be sure what makes a Christian a Christian. In 1923, almost 100 years ago, Samuel Miller from the Princeton Theological Seminary wrote a book, The Utility and Importance of Creeds and Confessions. And 100 years ago, he recognized this truth. It's not merely likely that a church or a denomination or an institution that is not accountable to a confession will wander. It is inevitable. He observed throughout history, the decision not to be confessional is a decision to be heretical. It's just a matter of time. There's not a single exception to the reality that every denomination, every school, every church that forfeited its confessional identity has merged into another gospel. All around us are the ruins of mainline Christianity. Every one of those was established on biblical truth. Not one was established on theological error, but every one of them found their way into it. J. Gresham Machen, writing at the beginning of the last century, recognized this deterioration as not two different versions of Christianity, but rather Christianity and some other religion. So when we think of confessions of faith, we mean very specifically to say what believers have rightly said throughout the centuries, throughout all the generations since the time of Christ. Our, speak, our freedom to speak the truth does not come from man, it does not come from government, but from God alone who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the freedom we're called to share. The landscape of Christian history is littered with the carcasses of great institutions that were founded and once stood for Christ. On July 4, 1776, there were 106 colleges in what was destined by God to become the United States of America. All but one was formed by Christians to promote the knowledge and glory of God. The first and perhaps the most famous school was Harvard, founded in 1638, just eight years after the pilgrims stepped onto Plymouth Rock. Their story, in brief, is etched in stone at the entryway to Harvard Yard. Here's the story of Harvard. After God had carried us safely to New England, and we had built our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. These were Congregationalists. Their ministers were the body of believers, as is ours. Every one of us is a minister. Every one of them was concerned for the next generation. Every one of them, after taking care of their necessary needs of housing and food and clothing, started to move towards sharing that responsibility with the next generation. 
A few years later, Harvard's rules and precepts included the following essentials. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer in secret seek wisdom of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading scriptures twice daily that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both theoretical observations of languages and logic and practical and spiritual truths. But Harvard had no commitment to the church, and almost at once they began to drift from the doctrine of Christ. It may come as a surprise that when Yale University was founded in 1701, it was, founded, it was founded to counter the growing liberalism at Harvard. The objective was to form a school where youth may be instructed in the arts and sciences who through the blessing of God may be fitted for public employment both in church, civil, and state. Students at Yale were required to live religious, godless, and blamely lives according to the rules of God's word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, the fountain of light and truth, and constantly to attend upon the duties of religion, both in public and in secret. Prayer was a requirement. Furthermore, every student was instructed to consider the main end of his study, to know God in Jesus Christ, and to lead a godly, sober life. The Ivy League schools fed into the mainstream of our society. In those earlier days, they rose a great army of graduates who could claim Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, and who left a strong impact on our nation. Their presidents and their faculties helped to set a high spiritual tone, and at times the campuses in turn felt the impact of holy revival. The educators of early America understood that the moral climate of its schools, colleges, and universities would shape its future generations and could ultimately decide the course of the nation. Many of our public schools were founded on the same grand principles and Christian truth. They maintained this foundation by adhering to the Christian faith and practice started by the communities they served. But in 1963, one woman, Madeline Murray O'Hare, a self-proclaimed atheist, began a process that resulted in the Supreme Court decision that removed the Bible from public schools. Coupled with the court's decision of a year before that removed prayer from our public schools, we can be certain that since 1963, 1963, our public schools have been proceeding without being moored to the truth. As a result of our silence and the court's decision, is it any wonder that our children are adrift in a sea of confusion? The image of Moses is front and center at the U.S. Supreme Court building. But his words commanded by God our Creator have long since left that building. The court then, as today, has forgotten the words Moses spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, 
lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Our public schools, indeed our public institutions, to include the halls of government, have forgotten the words of Moses. They no longer hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Instead, they've turned to their own ways apart from the word of God. And now they're focused on a self-defined morality found in the virtues of man. Their objective is to produce self-defining adults who choose their own values and lifestyles from a list of pre-approved alternatives rather than obedient children who follow a particular course laid down for them by their creator. To our shame, they are succeeding. Don't make a mistake and think our schools are failing. In fact, they are succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. Our schools reflect the worldview for which they have been designed. God is no longer welcome in our schools, neither are the people who for centuries have worked for his glory. The books we use to teach our children are by government decree godless. As a result, the Christian people who formed our great nation have been redacted, rewritten, or simply removed from the stage of our heritage. Last week, the FBI, and I, in interest of my heritage, must clarify that they did this under the direction of the Attorney General. The FBI released a redacted statement of the man who has become known as the Orlando Gunman. In an apparent effort to make the statement more politically correct, the government removed any reference deemed to be inappropriate for our ears. But we who are free to speak the truth objected and held our government to the standard of truth. Within hours, a full transcript was released. Yet when our education system does the same thing, redacting the story of history, we are sinfully silent. Let me share the stories of three Christian men who fought for defined, and defended religious liberty in our land. These stories are special to America. To understand them would all but end the attack on religious liberty today. But they will never be heard in public places because their stories speak of God. These stories are special to Virginia, the cradle of religious liberty. Each of the stories I'm going to share with you today took place not more than 30 minutes from our front door. In 1765, John Waller, better known as Swearing Jack, was a typical colonial Virginia gentleman, brawling and vulgar. That is, until he encountered the Baptists. At first, Waller, as most of Anglican Virginia, and the Anglicans were members of the Church of England, the government church, the only authorized church in colonial Virginia, after the Revolutionary War, the new American Anglicans changed their name to the Episcopalians. Well, back then, the Anglicans despised the Baptists as being radical and evangelical. Mostly, Swear and Jack hated them because they opposed his aristocratic, elite Virginia lifestyle of profanity and violence. Swearing Jack was a lawyer. And by most accounts, he was very good at it. On one occasion, Waller had the opportunity of a lifetime 
to participate in the prosecution of one of those annoying Baptist preachers. Louis Craig, lacking the freedom to speak the truth, was charged with speaking in public without a license. But when Waller confronted Craig in the courtroom, something unexpected occurred. Craig demonstrated a quiet strength and fortitude that caught Waller off guard. He had an inner peace that Waller had been searching for his entire life. Having never before seen such quiet confidence, Waller went looking for the source of Craig's countenance. Swearing Jack began attending Baptist meetings. After several months, John Waller renounced his Anglican roots and became a Baptist, a change that forever ostracized him from his privileged place in the society of the colonial gentry. After paying off his rather substantial gambling debts, Waller began preaching the gospel and telling the story of how God loved him and saved him from an eternity in hell. But Waller, like Craig before him, did not have a license to preach in Virginia. And in 1768, the one-time privileged gentry Anglican lawyer was arrested for disturbing the peace and for being a Baptist. But this did not deter him. In 1771, Waller incurred the full wrath of the government for preaching at an outdoor meeting. He was taken to the courthouse in Caroline County, Virginia, where the sheriff in the company of an Anglican minister whipped him and hit him in the mouth with the end of a bullwhip. Waller was turned over to the sheriff's posse who brutally beat him, leaving him bloodied and broken in the city's public square. Then in a scene reminiscent of the book of Acts, Waller, counting himself blessed to have suffered for the name of Christ and for the cause of Christian liberty in an oppressive place like colonial Virginia, cleaned himself up and returned to the stage at the public meeting from which he had been recently removed. His action, courage, and devotion impressed a bookish and idealistic 22-year-old in the crowd that day. And his brutal treatment at the hand of the government sickened the youth who resolved to consider the matter more completely after he returned to school in Princeton, New Jersey. Several days later, the impressionable young man wrote a letter to a friend in Pennsylvania asking him to pray that the liberty of religious conscience would be given to all citizens of the county. He signed his letter by the grace of God, James Madison. Swearing Jack Waller spoke the truth for religious liberty. In 1743, evangelical Presbyterians began invading and preaching in Virginia. Their unlawful acts, preaching without a license, inciting riots, disturbing the peace, drew the ire of Patrick Henry, the Anglican rector of St. Paul's Parish in Hanover, Virginia. Patrick Henry shared his name with his nephew from Scotchtown, Virginia, but the two had little more than their name or blood in common. Hanover Henry angrily denounced the Presbyterians in their work. He and the Virginia authorities particularly resented the way roving itinerants entered their parishes without their permission. One such itinerant was Samuel Davies, an evangelical Presbyterian 
from Pennsylvania. Davies came to Hanover in 1748, and he went on to lead a large group of Virginians in the descent to fight for the right to preach freely. Davis, Davies also received special dispensation from Sir William Gooch, the Royal Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, and for whom our neighbor Goochland County is named. But he soon ran afoul of the law for preaching at various meeting houses throughout Hanover and Louisa counties. Davies was jailed and released several times for challenging the law of the land. People, he reasoned, had the right to choose their own doctor. They should be entitled to have the same liberty in selecting a physician for their souls. Samuel Davies was a gifted Christian preacher, and he drew many listeners to include the Scotchtown Patrick Henry, who once called Davies the most gifted orator in America. Patrick Henry said that he used Davies' sermons, styles, and courage to form his own. Without the inspiration and preparation from Samuel Davies as his guide, Patrick Henry might never have had the motivation to say, give me liberty or give me death. John Leland was born on May 4, 1754 in Grafton, Massachusetts. He's remembered by a few as the primary Baptist spokesman in the South for religious liberty. During the American Revolution, Leland lived in Virginia. As a Baptist in Anglican Virginia, Leland was no stranger to religious prosecution to include imprisonment, beating, hounding, exclusion from public office, the collection of confiscatory taxes that were paid to the Anglican Church, and the wanton seizure of personal property in order to meet his tax obligations. In this light, he viewed the idea of religious liberty to be central in the fight for American independence. Leland, along with hundreds of Baptists, served in the Continental Army. Yet when the war was over and the new U.S. Constitution was unveiled, there was little or no provision for religious liberty for which he and his churchmen had fought. Leland spoke for many when he said, government has no more to do with religious opinions of men than it has with the principles of mathematics. Let every man speak freely without fear, maintain the principles that he believes, worship according to his own faith, one God, three gods, no gods, 20 gods, let government protect him in so doing. The proposed constitution contained only two or three incidental references to deity and a, a provision in Article 4 that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to hold any public office or trust. Leland was justifiably concerned and wrote a letter to George Washington expressing his fear of being subject to a government without the necessary restraints articulated by a protection for religious liberty. Washington's reply was prompt and gracious. Washington said, if I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed by the Convention where I had the honor to preside might possibly endanger the rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature to it. Well, Leland never doubted the character of George Washington, but he knew that Washington would not remain in the presidency forever, and he feared that someday someone with a differing view might occupy that office. 
Leland wrote to James Madison, who at first shared Washington's opinion that the language in the, in the Constitution was adequate. Leland also wrote to Thomas Jefferson, who would become one of his closest personal friends. Jefferson, who was in Paris at the time, replied by letter, the omission of a Bill of Rights providing clearly without the aid of sophisms for freedom of religion, freedom of the press, a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth. In March 1788, John Leland met with James Madison for the purpose of discussing Madison's fledgling candidacy for the first session of the U.S. House of Representatives and the issue of religious liberty. Leland, as spokesman for the Baptists and other like-minded Christians, held a swing vote in the 15th district. Without Leland, Madison's candidacy was all but doomed. After a long and by all reports congenial and respectful meeting, Leland came forward in support of Madison, and Madison once again found his voice for religious liberty, a voice that was perhaps rekindled by his remembrance of swearing Jack Waller in Caroline County. On May 4, 1789, just four days after the inauguration of President Washington, Madison announced to the House of Representatives his intention to introduce amendments to the Constitution to include the covenant clause that defines religious liberty. If John Leland had not had the courage to encourage James Madison to stand again for religious liberty, the Bill of Rights might have been silent on the subject. Leland said the notion of a Christian commonwealth should be exploded forever. Government should protect every man in thinking and speaking freely and see that one does not abuse the other. The liberty I contend for is more than toleration. The very idea of toleration is despicable. It supposes that some have a preeminence above the rest to grant indulgence, whereas all should be equally free, Jews, Turks, pagans. And Christians. John Leland spoke the truth for religious liberty. Well, you won't hear about swearing Jack Waller, Samuel Davies, or John Leland in public today. In fact, you won't hear much about Madison or Jefferson or Washington. They've been forgotten. Their work has been marginalized and minimized in favor of the ways of the world. Today, when we speak about religious liberty, we always almost always hear it preceded by the phrase so-called, or so-called religious liberty. And it's often surrounded by quotation marks when we see it in print, indicating that tolerance, after all, as Leland said, is nothing more than that some have a preeminence above the rest to grant indulgence. Our history is littered with the forgotten saints who in their time demonstrated Christian obedience to a calling higher than their own. As a nation, we've not only forgotten, but we have abandoned our children to a system that has no foundation in reality, no foundation in truth, and no foundation in hope. What is written in the law? How do you read it? With these words, the Lord Jesus proclaimed our liberty. Jesus, the author of life, provided a catechism for freedom. How do you read it?
Although there are many applications, there is only one meaning, one truth in Scripture. It is the truth that sets us free. The idea that we are free to develop our own conclusion and apply it as necessary to our situation is simply another gospel that has been offered by those who wish to distort the truth and steal our freedom. We can see this in the story before us today. Jesus' conversation does not end with a question. He waits for an answer, and then he grades the test. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Only the correct answer leads to eternal life. Not all who were quizzed by the Lord fared so well. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus having dinner with Matthew and his tax collector friends. The Pharisees are very upset, and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Later in chapter 12, we see evidence that the Pharisees had not learned well. He speaks to them again, reminding them of their previous assignment. He said, and if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In the gospel of truth, there is no such thing as an acceptable wrong answer. Either you are free to speak the truth or you are not. Speaking another gospel leads to slavery and not freedom. Although all have clearly abandoned the gospel of truth, the Ivy League and other schools in America are still fueling the course of our nation. Consider this. The last three decades have seen four presidents and at any given time, eight of the nine Supreme Court justices who are a product of these schools. The presidents attended Harvard and Yale. The justices, six graduated from Harvard, two from Yale and one from Columbia. Imagine what the world would we, we live in today would look like if these schools had held to their original doctrinal standards laid down by their founders for the glory and knowledge of God. Imagine a world where Ivy League schools and public schools after them taught our children the freedom of the truth. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Imagine a nation led by men and women who are held to a confessional standard of the doctrine of what is written. You see, when Christian schools do not remain under the pastoral authority of God and his church, very bad things happen, and they happen to all without exception. Once released from the tether of God's word, there's nothing to keep us from drifting into the abyss. Today, these schools graduate great moral thinkers who believe and teach our children that life is a cosmic accident. Truth is whatever works for you. Children are a choice. Sex is recreational. Marriage is defined by man. And gender is a feeling that oftentimes changes from moment to moment. As God is driven from our campuses, 
so is the truth and the freedom to speak it. Make no mistake, in a worldview absent from God, the children of tomorrow are at risk. We have a responsibility to the next generation, a generation that is critically underserved in America today. Paul in Galatians, now in chapter 2, described the objective of his ministry, which by no coincidence is the objective of our own. Galatians 2, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly bought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul did not yield to public opinion, neither should we. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Thanks be to God for our freedom in Christ, for our freedom to speak the truth, and for standing up the Apostle Paul and the generations of believers who preserved the gospel for us so that we might preserve it for our children. By his grace, may they always be free to speak the truth.